We're seeing tons of meth use, needles scattered around the community, lots of opioid use, a huge increase, as well as cocaine. Our conversations with the members of the Southeast Tribal Nation, they have unanimously expressed how harm reduction program is definitely needed to preserve the lives of our loved ones. So if you can fight fire with fire, why can't you fight the harms that substance use causes to individuals, families, communities with people who use substances? That's Helene San Pedro, Ellen Contois, and Tall East. They're all connected to Fire with Fire, a response in eight First Nations communities in southeastern Manitoba to substance misuse causing harm and overdose. They are our guests on this episode of Minobamadzuin, a podcast brought to you by the Thunderbird Partnership Foundation. I'm Carol Hopkins, CEO of Thunderbird Partnership Foundation, an organization that supports First Nations across Canada in mental wellness. And today, I'm hosting Minobimatsuin. Minobimatsuin means living the good life in the language of Anishinaabe. Thunderbird chose that as a name for the podcast because it captures what we all hope for, for ourselves and for those we care about. This podcast aims to seek and share insight about addictions and mental health issues that many of our families and communities are dealing with. We're going to be fearless and have thoughtful and informative conversations with some of the leading voices in Indigenous wellness. Our aim is the same as Thunderbirds, to offer support in addressing substance use and addictions issues through a holistic approach to healing and wellness, one that is grounded in culture, Indigenous ways of knowing, a connection to community, and above all, kindness and compassion. Today we're thrilled to be joined by three incredible guests who are leading efforts in drug harm reduction with their organization and their program, Fire with Fire. It operates in the Southeast Resource Development Council among eight member First Nations in Treaty 1 territory in Manitoba. Fire with Fire responds to individual needs of community members with the support of peer mentors that will form quick response teams in each of the communities served. The main purpose of the peer mentors is to educate, support, and train those in community towards more helpful health outcomes in dealing with opioid and meth addiction. Ellen Contois is a project coordinator of Fire with Fire and a proud member of the Broken Head Ojibwe Nation. Tall East is the Fire with Fire Mental Wellness Program's manager and developer. She was born in Jerusalem and is an ally of First Nations across Turtle Island. And Helene San Pedro is the Tribal Health Educator for Harm Reduction for the Southeast Resource Development Council and a settler to Treaty Run territory from the Philippines. First of all, Tal, could you tell us about the name Fire with Fire and help us understand the meaning of that name? Absolutely. So in the late summer of 2021, 
we had some pretty serious forest fires in three of our communities, Little Grand Rapids, Pangasi, and Barron's River. At the time, we had just been moving into an, our new building, the Southeast Lodge in West St. Paul in Manitoba. And we were all working out of the same room because our offices weren't ready. And so our emergency services coordinator was in the room. The directors were in the room. And we had a conversation about the fire situation in our communities and the evacuations and started talking about how do you fight fire in those isolated communities, isolated and remote communities. And we we talked about the fact that some of the community members that stayed behind and the firefighters in the community that stayed behind would be starting fires in order to fight the fires that had started. And I thought, well, wouldn't it be great to to be able to fight substance use and the harms of substance use, not so much the use itself, but the harms that, that, that it causes uh, in the same manner? So if you can fight fire with fire, why can't you fight the harms that substance use causes to individuals, families, communities with people who use substances. So essentially using the experience of the users to assist those struggling with the use and the communities. And um, Helene was there and I, I literally on a sticky note wrote down fire with fire. And I said, what about this fully informed risk education on a foundation of individual uh, recovery experiences? And she was like, oh, my God, that's brilliant. Of course, I felt very good right away. Thank you, Aline. And um, then just presented it to my supervisor, to the director, and it all really snowballed really quickly. I put in a proposal. We found out in April of 2022 that the project was approved among um, 90 across the country. And so we immediately began recruitment and talking to community health directors, chief and council, and the rest is history. Here we are with fire with fire. Fantastic. And congratulations. I just wanted to highlight that uh, brilliance that you had there um, and the pride that you feel. Um, It's no surprise that it resonates with other people. And, you know, you have it right when people automatically connect and say, yes, that means something to me. Yes, I can get connected to that. You learned from creation and now you're creating uh, a new path forward. Thank you. That's, that's beautifully said. Thank you. Awesome. Alan, can you tell us uh, what's the current situation with uh, drug use and addictions across uh, the territory that you're working in? Yeah, so Helene and I just had the absolute pleasure of meeting uh, probably around 30 people in four tribal nations, all within 300 kilometers maximum outside of uh, Winnipeg, where we're, we're centered. And to meet the people, talk about some of the challenges on the ground and just what is going around really opened my eyes as a former addict. Uh, just to how serious and detrimental things have escalated to, right? I think we heard a lot about challenges related to accessing um, medicine. Uh, one gentleman traveled a great distance to the local 
urban city in Powerview to obtain methadone in his recovery over the last two years. And that's something that we're trying to, you know, change within our tribal nation to make sure that we have that access in community. And that's a slow evolution. Uh, we're seeing tons of meth use, needles uh, scattered around the community, lots of opioid use, a huge increase, as well as cocaine. Uh, so those were some of the recent um, drugs that people were informing us are in their nations, and just the isolation that come with that and the stigma uh, as significant challenges that they're trying to get around. You know, when I got into this conversation many, many years ago, uh, that was the common story across the country is no access to treatment in our First Nations communities. And we didn't have Suboxone on the non-insured health benefits formulary. And so the medication that people were trying to seek out was methadone. And because of the way we use methadone to support people who are withdrawing from opioids, it meant that they had to be at the clinic, the pharmacy every single day. And there were First Nations talking about hitchhiking 100 miles back and forth every single day. That's incredible determination to be well. And here we are 20 years later, and we're still talking about the lack of access to medications that can sustain life, that can help people in their determination to be well. And that's a really sad reality of the story um, that you're sharing with us, Alan. Thank goodness your program exists to serve the communities of the Southeast Resource Development Council. Helene, we're also seeing communities like the ones that you're working with, um, working together more and pooling resources and information to support uh, the First Nations in addressing the harms of substance use. Can you tell us a little bit more about how that's working for the First Nations communities of the Southeast Resource Development Council and why is it working? What makes it work or what doesn't work? Mm -hmm. um, definitely collaboration is key um, to a successful harm reduction program. Um, and as our communities have already expressed, they get the short end of the stick having limited resources. Um, harm reduction from the stories that were shared to us um, is something that has already been started um, in communities even before it was called harm reduction. Um, and in listening to the stories that were shared with us, um, it was how the grandmothers and the aunties and family members um, have taken in um, and looked after and supported their loved ones who struggle with addictions. There are existing uh, resources in the communities that come together, like primary care, education, maternal child health. There are some communities with FASD prevention programs, they're building up, you know, like recreation um, programming as well. Um, and 
our uh, tribal council. We do have our wellness uh, programs, clinical programs, Indian residential school programs, um, you know, coming together and, and, and NADAP as well. We have gone to communities to hold and and support them um, to have uh, sharing circles and to do outreach um, as well. But the challenge that the communities have expressed is to keep it consistently going. So here we are now as a harm reduction team. Hopefully, you know, we get to support them to, to have peer support groups, uh, sharing circles, as well as having the community members empowering them to to get the land-based uh, programming and culture integrated with the harm reduction program too. And with the Fire with Fire project, communities, well, the, the members that we have spoken to um, in the last two days that Alan and I were on the road, um, they have expressed, greatly expressed, that they would like to come together and meet regularly so that they can share um, what works and what does not work in terms of their unique approaches, because they believe and we all believe that regular conversations through sharing circles would be key to building on one another and solidifying harm reduction strategies that will be effective not only in their respective communities, but in the Southeast First Nations. So Tall, I wonder if you can describe, you know, what's the critical nature of of the challenge that you're facing in serving a number of communities and supporting them um, in moving forward with harm reduction and their capacity to to think about that and engage people. I would say that that like Helene and Alan both mentioned, and, and I think I mentioned earlier, is that because our many of our communities, not all, are are isolated, fly-in only, it becomes a real challenge to provide the necessary services um, that people in urban centers have more access to. Um, the challenge is still there for those in the urban centers as well to access services. They are still very much siloed as much as you know, cities and provinces and and governments try to connect them. They're still very much siloed and there's a lot of systemic issues. However, uh, the further away from those centers you go, the harder it gets. And uh, so hard, in fact, that in most of our communities, the services that are available are not even recognized. If you were to name the rapid access to addiction medicine, for example, no one would know what you're talking about. Perhaps one or two clinical professionals, but at the community level, at the ground roots, people have no idea what that even means. And even if they know what it means, they have no idea how to access this, how, how to get it. Um, substance use doesn't happen between 9 and 5 p.m. It happens 24 hours a day. And so access needs to be 24 hours a day. And that just doesn't occur in in urban centers and definitely not in our communities. Nursing stations, health centers close on a very colonial schedule. (laughs) Um, You know, 5 p.m. is a banker's hours. That's when everybody wants to go home. And that's what we've learned no matter where we live, whether we're isolated and remote or or urban. However, the access continues to be the, the biggest problem. And so what we're seeing is a lot of overdose. What we're seeing is a lot of loss of life. 
what we're seeing are a lot of broken communities, broken families and broken people uh, and broken heritage, really. And so we're trying to do our piece to bring that back and to provide the services that are available. You know, outside of Fire with Fire, we're, we're talking about how can we provide mobile services that uh, provide access to all the same communities that Fire with Fire will work with. And so Fire with Fire will take some of that um, resource unavailability away by providing some services to keep people alive, to keep the, that breath going, such as using the peers that hopefully um, are able to gain trust that many others don't, changing the way we talk about people who use substances. So the language change in both the traditional languages and English, um, utilizing people with experience who are not the, the substance users necessarily, but perhaps the dealers or perhaps the, the elders who are themselves in financial distress and financial situations where, you know, it may have started with a surgery, became an addiction, and then became a, a profitable way of survival. So it's much more than just the substance use and the addiction itself. It's all the social determinants of health. It's, uh, it's those types of barriers that we're trying to eliminate with one project by using the peers, the people in the community, and those that know their surroundings better than any of us. So bringing the service to them as opposed to hoping that they travel thousands or hundreds of kilometers to get a service, which we know just doesn't happen. Tal, you said something really critical. Um, and I think I heard you say that you're including people who use drugs, people who are selling drugs in the conversation to help build an understanding, to destigmatize, to change our perspectives of people who are using drugs to understand the struggles that they faced. Is that what you said? That is 100% what I said. No one knows better than them. I'm a recovering crack cocaine substance user. So this is good for me on an individual lens as well, right? Like I'll learn and I'll change and I'll grow and hopefully help others. But yes, um, people like me are in the conversation. People like Alan, people like Helene, people who've used, people who know someone who used, people who've lost someone who used, people who love someone who uses, um, and people who sell. Whether we like it or not, the people who provide the substance to those who are looking for it, are providing a service. There is a lot of pain. There is a lot of trauma. There is a lot of history, dark history that we're trying to get through. There are a lot of broken families and lives that we're trying to mend. And um, in the meantime, those who provide the substances that bring them into community, whether we like it or not, are providing a service. They're assisting with some of that pain, as crazy as that sound. And I know that does, is not what we're used to hearing. Um, so we need to find a better way and maybe we can ask them to help us help everyone else there. They need to be part of the conversation. Thank you so much for highlighting that's that very critical and important point. Ellen, can you tell us a little bit more about how communities are responding to your program overall? What's the impact or what's the response? I would say right from the outset of uh, initiating a hiring process with our human resources area, we saw a dire need to sort of recruit 
people in a different way. So we started a social media campaign with very, you know, plain poster language uh, that was really enticing for people, such as, do you use opioids, crack, meth? Do you want to be a peer mentor? You know, and 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 getting people that way, uh, we saw such a huge response to the 21 people we're looking for in community over a two-week period. We have 56 applications. We started meeting those people. Um, and so the response has been huge. And just fresh in my mind, you know, is our travel over the last few days. Listening to the stories, you know, I remember a young person sharing her addiction to meth and how, you know, people are telling her that she has psychosis. Um, but there's question about whether she's talking about potential gifts that she may carry outside of the drug use um, spiritually, because she's talking about this spiritual connection. And it's not necessarily could be psychosis, but it also could be that she's gifted and she is hearing a voice, you know, that is telling her that she needs to stop. And so we had a good conversation with that young person just about, you know, that reality uh, about how it could be two different things and she needs to honor that um i also you know heard a young another young person talk about oh I, she was so excited to learn about rapid access to addiction medicine because she felt like that was the answer rapid right it, it's such a misconception that you know she felt she was going to go today and she was ready she wanted to do that. And, you know, the the sad reality is, you know, as I walk alongside even parents in my former job, taking them to the rapid access clinic two, three hours before, stand in line forever and get turned away. Um, you know, so it's such a, you know, challenging concept to how do we get people what they need when they're ready. Um, I was really pleased to have leadership sitting in on one of our interviews in a lower response community and really talk about the need for transitional housing and how does that become a reality to get people out of the situation that they want to leave, but really they're homeless on the street in a remote First Nation community. And then they also talked about the challenges related to the dealers and how the reality is that some have gang affiliations where they may be forced to continue that habit to whether it be pay off a debt or because someone's holding something over their head. So how do we actually engage that person into an exit strategy with people that know that lifestyle to change that conversation rather than simply just BCRing them out of the community, which we know creates more harm. I guess I would just close by also saying, you know, sadly, I'm looking for three peer mentors in each community, but some of the people that are really ready to go, you know, equate to six. So it becomes for me, how do I keep those people engaged in that process of change um, when they're perhaps being let down? because they're not the successful person for one of these three important jobs. Um, so it's, it's about now finding creative ways to keep them involved. So because they direly want that 
you know, um, opportunity to help others because they understand and they want that, you know, opportunity for just living a different life. And so those are some of the things that I'm hearing from the people. And you, you know, my heart is just so big for, you know, what we've heard people talk about, how, you know, they're so excited about opportunities such as peer mentor in the community because there's not a lot of, you know, even after care, after treatment, uh, there's not a lot of that access to supports after, after hours, as Tal put it. We did a, a First Nations opioid methamphetamine survey, and during the pandemic, we collected data from about 2,000 First Nations people. And for those, for the population that said they were, you know, had a history or were actively using opioids or methamphetamine housing, as you mentioned, Alan, 30% of the population talked about not having housing, regular housing and where people lived in overcrowded housing of, say, seven or more people, they were more at risk for use, even when they had intentions or wanted to change their life. And you mentioned an exit strategy, helping people to understand their support. If you want to move from the lifestyle you currently are living or feel like you're stuck in, there's help to you to support you in thinking about how do you move out of that? How do you move out of that safely for yourself, but also how that maybe increase safety for the family or safety for the community? I guess I would also add on one of the common things that we had heard about as, you know, community frustration. Um, some addicts in recovery, you know, now that they're a little bit more clear minded and a bit more stable, talk just about how the family and the community were just so up in arms about how to help them. And so really, they just kind of gave up because they didn't know how to help and their boundary came up. And so it was like, no, you need to leave um, because they were just so tired of that heart pain that they were carrying um, related to, I, I can't help this person because they didn't want that help, right? And how for some that was a wake-up call. Yeah. But I distinctly know for some that means death, yeah. right? And so how do we combat that challenge um, when we're so uh, challenged just by the you know community need as a whole, never mind add in addictions right. or, you know, other related supports. Uh, Tal, I was just going to ask, you know, what, what else is needed in terms of support? You know, when you think about federal government, provincial government, what is it that you want to say to government um, that might be listening to this important program and your description of the services you offer and the struggles but also the strengths that are within the community. What is it that you want them to know in terms of what else is needed? What's most critical? I think the most critical piece right now is keeping people alive. It's not, we, should, we need to stop arguing about whether it's right, wrong, um, you know, whether it's faith-based or, or land-based or traditional or colonial. We just need to keep people alive. I have a bit of a different perspective now. My, I lost my son 
five weeks ago tomorrow to a fentanyl overdose. Um, I'm so sorry, Tall. Yeah. So to me, it's a, it's a different type of um, passion than it was even when I first came up with the name and, 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 and the, the mission I, oh, just over a year ago. So I want governments, I want chief and counsel, I want communities, um, our leaderships everywhere to know that it can, if it can happen to me, a person who had every single resource at her fingertips, it can happen to anyone. And that anyone could be their child, their relative, someone they just know, a friend. Um, but the biggest thing is they need to understand that it's not just going to go away. And for some reason, we treat this crisis different than any other crisis. So we, we either need to stop the u- using the word crisis and call it something else, even though we know it's a crisis, or we need to be start behaving as leadership and government as if it's a crisis. In Manitoba, we have floods almost every year. Every year we call the flood a crisis. Before that flood happens, there is a centralized meeting room, emergency center. There is sandbagging going on. There are multiple levels of government that work together and collaborate. There's volunteerism, and we react to the crisis in order to sustain life and property. When COVID happened, that was a crisis. That still is a crisis. Governments, we see how governments pull together, communities pull together, leadership collaborated with each other to ensure that people stayed alive and preserve that breath of life and at every corner and everywhere we turned. We're not doing the same when it comes to substance use, yet we call it a crisis. So if it truly is a crisis and we, we believe that it is as governments and we use that verbiage and the language, then we need to start acting like it's a crisis. People are dying no different than they do and do from COVID, no different than they do from flooding. And we need to start taking our our people's and relatives' lives as seriously as we do the properties that we protect from water, the properties that we protect from fire. These are individuals. These are people with families who are loved, who are missed, who themselves long for um, that ache to go away. Every substance user has the hardest job in the world, the hardest job to get up every day and wonder where they're going to get their next, their next dose in order to alleviate the pain. We need to start acting like it's, it's an emergency. We need to put emergency measures in place to deal with this crisis that not, is not just in Manitoba. It's in it's all over our country. country. It's across Turtle Island, and it's reached my home. And so who's next? No one is immune from this. It's not an age. It's not a sex or or sexual orientation. It's not a gender specific ailment. It's not a race or creed or nationality. It's a human issue and we need to start treating it like the crisis that it is. And that includes money. You know, that's probably the biggest piece. We need to throw money at it uh, because we can't get resources without the money. We can't get workforce without the money. And the workforce is burnt out. The workforce that is there. 
Um, the workforce so, is burnt out from the pandemic. Absolutely, it's the same workforce that is dealing with the with the overdose and and drug poisoning crisis in our community. The difference between this crisis and the pandemic is that we have more deaths, unnecessary deaths, from a lack of access to treatment, a lack of access to healthcare, a lack of access to caring. Um, absolutely just a lack of access to caring about people as fellow human beings. It's about humanity and preserving that, that sacred breath of life. Very powerful message. Go ahead, Ellen. You were going to say. I I would also add one of the really empowering um, stories that I heard time after time after time over the last few days was this concept of sobriety camps and how people got well and found others that really gave them that hope and how, you know, the equality of getting that um, in terms of, you know, bringing people in with expertise and talent um, and cultural providers from the home territory. Um, one person really said it's like we need an elder circle that helps other elders in our community repick up all that was lost, Mm -hmm. right? And I think that also rings true in what I was seeing in that two-week period of such a huge response to this initiative that's really been undertaken in our tribal nation were from other tribal nations in Manitoba that somehow got the poster and they said, we need this here, Um, So we are hoping to grow this initiative to a place where we can have it as a model for other communities across the tribal nations. And so I think really what it comes down to is funding equality, which of course we've been hammering the table for uh, for years. Um, I think of all of the young men uh, that I worked with in the federal penitentiary system, that were equipped with such knowledge and power, really, that went home to the same thing. And often it related to a return because they returned to that same behavior. And how that system is so funded out the yin-yang to keep people there when really, how do we keep people out if we'd only invest that same amount of money and resources? What could we change in terms of the, the systems that, that keep people oppressed, really? They're spending yes. lots of money to build new jails. And, and who's going to fill up those jails? And imagine the money. That- sorry. Imagine the money that... that- could be saved with the money that should be spent long-term on those jails and on the hospitals and on, um, you know, the, the, the emergency flights for communities and so on. So the amount of, you know, I'm sure there's, there's a, a finance person out there that has done this, a cost analysis of, you know, if we spend this much on, on, on this type of project, how much do we save long term? And we're hoping that through this project, we 
we find that out. We've made sure that we've put that in our budget so that we can hire or contract someone who can do that for us so that we can go back when our 18 months are over of this project and say, actually, this piece of the funding is over. But because we were able to sh- to show you that we can save this many lives and this much money long term, it should be a con- continuously funded and, and grown. So that's our hope. Sorry, I cut you off totally. No, um, you made an important point. We we do spend a lot of money um, for medevacs out of our community. Medevacs to fly somebody to um, a healthcare facility costs a lot of money. To keep somebody incarcerated, it costs a lot of money. Helene, going to ask you. In cities and in urban environments, we've talked about rural and remote communities, but there's also, Tal, you mentioned the urban environment. We can't assume that because you live in a city, you automatically have access to what you need. So, Helene, can you talk to us about that urban environment and and what you're seeing um, there in terms of greater use of uh, things like needle exchange or safe supply or supervised injection sites or that focus on harm reduction. How do we take the learning from those programs and help First Nations communities benefit from that learning? Mm -hmm. How do you see that happening? Well, in our conversations with the members of of the Southeast Tribal um, Nation, they have unanimously expressed how harm reduction program is definitely needed um, to preserve the lives of our loved ones. And we would like to highlight how a few of our communities are already actually uh, providing safe equipment, supplies, safety kits to community members that are in need. Um, and we recently had discussions with um, one of our communities where the health staff and the leadership have identified and asked for our supports um, to strengthen their needle exchange program. So it's already happening in some of our communities and we'll be we'll, we'll continue working with them on strategies um, involving, you know, community health, the community health team, the nursing station, uh, bringing in the environmental health officers to um, determine fixed sites and sharp drop boxes that will be accessible for folks. So this is already happening. Um, And with the help and with the continued help of um, the community leaders, the health champions, and most especially, let's not forget um, the folks and the peers with lived experiences, as they're the true champions and experts, um, we're currently working on um, helping our communities from our region define what harm reduction would look like. And in the true essence of harm reduction, where we meet where people are at, um, Tall, Alan, and I, along with um their uh, existing community resources. Um, we, you know, we'll, we're, we're here to meet where the communities are at in terms of their readiness. And um, 
We're here to continue to have those conversations and to find the solutions to keep the spirit of uh, harm reduction in looking after our relatives, in loving our relatives so that we don't end up losing anyone. If I can add, um, unfortunately, Manitoba is one of very few provinces that doesn't have any safe consumption sites. Um, we don't have safe supply. Uh, you know, the, if you go out west, uh, it's, it's people banding together to make sure that their loved ones remain alive, both in urban centers and in, in isolated communities. It's different here. Our government is about 10 years behind others. Our province is known for being a little bit behind the times when it comes to those things. Uh, so we are very much, it feels like, still far away from achieving the goal of having a safe consumption site or a safe supply available to substance users. We're starting to, to see more conversation by many agencies and many programs in the cities and in the bigger urban centers that are discussing harm reduction. We're seeing more conferences that are around harm reduction, more training, more webinars that are Manitoba specific and conversations that are specific to our, our unique and uniqueness of the province. Um, however, it is very frustrating that we are so far behind other places who have proven that safe consumption and safe safe supply, safe access to resources, save lives. And so, um, you know, we do have needle exchanges. We do have uh, harm reduction supply distribution in, in Winnipeg, both mobile um, as well as stationary locations. But that's just not enough. It's, you know, it's just not nearly enough. The people that are accessing the needle exchange programs, that are accessing the van patrols, are not the only people using substances. What we see is a drop in the bucket of the actual use that we don't see. The people mm -hmm. that whose basements are their safe consumption sites, the trap houses that are safe consumption sites, the back lanes where peers inject each other or use together in order to stay alive. And so because of that, and because we know that that is so lacking in our province, for one reason or another, and I'm sure it's many many reasons altogether, uh, and again, money. Um, because of that, we've just decided that we're going to take it upon ourselves. We're going to distribute naloxone wherever and, and however we can. We're going to dis train people. We're going to hire people. We're going to use peers as the experts. And we're going to take our, our cues from community and from, from the peers and we're going to try and keep people alive by working with the resources that are in community. And they may look different from community to community, but our message and our goal remains the same, is to protect our relatives and protect each other. And so while our governments argue and squabble over silliness, um, we will continue to fight for safe consumption in this province. We will continue to fight for safe supply in this province and I myself am now more determined than ever to uh, not let my son die in vain because of all the things that are lacking and I don't want any of our relatives to feel the pain that um, I'm feeling and so um, uh, it is my promise to fight this fight for as long as it takes.
That's fire for the fire. I'm a little fiery. A little fiery. (laughs) (laughs) That using the passion, transforming the passion um, from your own lived experience to inform and keep you going and keep you motivated in those times when it doesn't look like change is possible. It supports the fire within you to keep the fire going that motivates you to create change. Just a last thought from Alan, Helene, Tall, if you want to add another thought about the strengths that you see that bring you hope. You talked about your own life experience and it's got to be hard you know, when you think about your son and, and yet you keep going, what brings you hope, Tall? What brings you hope, Alan? What brings you hope, Helene? Um, I guess I would just start is uh, after working in two systems where I was a strong advocate for people, uh, finding this project really uh, gave me hope. Um, and really created a new bounce in my step towards, you know, creating that uh, opportunity for people. But this week, going to community and talking to people and seeing the spark in people's eyes that every day uh, had challenges with putting one foot in front of the other, but are still wanting to try, that fuels me. Um, it fuels me and I honor them. Uh, and I'll work hard every day to try to make this project uh, as successful as I can for them today, now, and into the future. For me, what brings me hope is that, you know, for every crisis we face, every difficulty, every challenge, our communities, seeing our communities and the people how they show resilience and strength, like that brings me hope as well as ignites my fire too, to like how how could I uh, support, how could I um, empower um, and and be a part of of uh, yeah, helping helping them. We may be faced with this drug crisis right now. But it's just going to bring people together. Um, it's it's going to like help us learn from one another. Um, and what also brings me hope is um, seeing the strength through connection, through kindness, and empathy. Um, and these will all help us get through this. What brings me hope? Is the juxtaposition of the children next to the elders talking about the same thing. What brings me hope are the two people I share the screen with from SERDC today. What brings me hope is knowing that you heard and listened to our story. And what brings me hope is my son's spirit as he makes his journey home over the next year. Um, and our our healing is what brings me hope because it's it's we can't not heal we have to there is no choice 
We have to heal. We have to do it together. We have to do it across generations. We have to do it across age groups and nations. Um, and that brings me hope. Being here today definitely brings me hope. Thank you, Tall, Ellen, and Helene, for sharing such a powerful story. Such an incredible belief you have and a vision for our future. And most of all, for the important tracks you're making on this earth for others to follow. You create a path so that others can find a path forward into our future. Thank you all for coming on the podcast today. Thank you. Big witch. Thank you, Carol. Thank you so much. And thank all of you for listening to this episode of Minobimatsuin. We hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. It helps people to find these interviews. And please hit subscribe so you don't miss future episodes. For more information on the work of Thunderbird Partnership Foundation, please visit us at thunderbirdpf.org. And be sure to follow us on social media. Just search for us at thunderbirdpf. Thanks again, Chimmy Gwich, for listening today. And until next time, I'm Carol Hopkins. <laughs>